Can y'all hear me now? Awesome. Good morning. So good to see y'all here this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for not only giving us an opportunity to be saved, but Father, actually giving us your Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for, for coming to live within us, change us, and live through us. Father, as we read your word, Father, help us to open our eyes to where we can see it clearly, our minds so that we can understand it. And Father, open, open our hearts up to give us the, the passion and the desire and the love to go out and to, to move your kingdom forward. We love you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So we are jumping into the book of Acts this morning. I'm very excited. Uh, Most of you probably know the book of Acts by the title, The Acts of the Apostles. But I heard someone tell me that, you know, it may more appropriately be called The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So that's what I titled this sermon, The Acts of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is literally about the birth of the church, the early history of the church, but showing that it was all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you think of the Holy Spirit, I hope that you think power. Because that is what the Holy Spirit is for, for us. Power. He is to give us power. And we're going to talk about that. Acts 1, chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus, now this is, Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel Luke. Um, he wrote this to a, a man named Theophilus. If you're going to take the time to write a big narrative like this to someone named Theophilus, Theophilus was probably a very wealthy or high-ranking individual who had become a Christian, and Luke was writing to him to inform him about um, how he can have confidence as a Christian, especially if he was wealthy and high-ranking, he would have been one of very few who were. And we can relate to Theophilus um, in many ways in the sense of when you make that commitment to follow Christ, that you will find yourself surrounded in many times by people who have no desire to follow Christ. Even if they claim to be Christian, they have no desire to actually follow Christ and live for Christ. And you're going to find yourself having to stand up, make a tough stand, Um, around people and you want to have confidence that what you're doing and saying is right and that is kind of the perspective that Luke is writing to this um, man that we know as Theophilus he starts off um, just incredibly when he writes that Jesus and you've heard me talk about this many times before Jesus after he died and was in the tomb for three days and rose on the third day he spent 40 days on earth before ascending to heaven to sit on the throne at the right hand of God. 40 days post-resurrection he spent on earth. And every time we read about him, it's funny, we read he appeared 
Every time after his resurrection, he appeared. He appeared to them. He appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. He appeared in the locked room. And that's why it was included, that it was a locked room. In other words, the only way that he could appear in that room is that he came out of nowhere. He appeared. And we often read, he also quickly disappeared. So you should keep in mind that during that 40 days, Jesus spent his 40 days popping up over here, doing something important, disappearing to go pop up somewhere else, to do something important, disappearing to go pop up somewhere else, to do something important. Walking was just going to hinder his progress. (laughs) Riding a camel was not fast enough. He had a lot to do in 40 days. And so he would just appear and disappear, appear and disappear, appear and disappear. So when you think of Jesus during those 40 days, I want you to think of him as busy. I want you to think of him as committed to having something, a goal that he has to accomplish. And he is going to make the best use of his time. Something that I find myself very hard to accomplish. Making the best use of my time. That is something that Jesus was determined to do. And so he appeared, did something really important, and disappeared. So every time you read he appears somewhere and does something, you have to understand that whatever he chose to do with his time was very, very important. And so we read, what did he do during those 40 days? Luke said, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus felt was most important for him to do during those 40 days was to teach the disciples about the kingdom of God. And that has not changed to today. That is what is most important for us to do, to speak about the kingdom of God to others. He did this on the road to Emmaus, remember, when he appeared to the two disciples? Luke twenty four thirty two says this, They said to each other, after Jesus had appeared to them, had taught them the scriptures, and disappeared, they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Weren't our hearts burning within us? When he was on the road explaining the scriptures to us. What was it in them that was burning? What do you think it was? It was the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you know that feeling. You know it. At some point in your life, I would pray many times. But at some point, when you said that you came to faith in Christ, at some point in your life, someone was sharing the scriptures with you, the truth about God with you, the truth about Jesus with you, the truth about yourself. And you had a burning feeling inside of you. You felt it. It was real. It wasn't just, just a, oh, that makes sense. You felt it. You knew it was true. It burned within you. And since you've become a Christian, you've had many more of those experiences where you've been reading the Scripture or you heard the Scripture explained to you and you just had that feeling of that burning feeling inside of you of that Holy Spirit reaching out, grabbing a hold of you and drawing you to Himself. That is what that burning is. 
It's the Holy Spirit grabbing your heart and pulling it close. So they asked if he was going to rebuild. Well, he, he was talking about the scriptures to them. So his disciples, after he had appeared to them and talked with them, his, his disciples asked him if he was going to rebuild and restore the kingdom of Israel. They were under the impression, as I'm sure I would have been at the time, that when the Messiah came, he would establish the kingdom as it had been prophesied and foretold that, 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 that animals and people will get along and there will be peace and, and no one will oppress Israel anymore and that the, the king of Israel, that all nations would bow to the king of Israel. All these things that the prophets had prophesied about the coming kingdom and the Messiah Everyone assumed, as I'm sure I would have, that when the Messiah showed up, that he was going to go ahead and institute that kingdom and that it was going to happen right now. And so they thought that was going to happen while Jesus was going around performing miracles. And they even took up arms to force him as their king. And he, he, he secretly disappeared out of the crowd at that point. And then after he was crucified, they thought, okay, he must not be the Messiah because we know the Messiah is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And that all nations will bow to the king of Israel. He must not be the Messiah. And so they had doubts. But then three days later, when he showed up alive with the, with the, with the holes still in his wrists and in his feet and in his side. And he told Thomas, hey, you can put your hand in here. I'm not a ghost. I'm not an image. This is a real body with real holes. When he appeared alive from the dead, then they realized Rome can't kill this guy. This is definitely the guy that's going to lead us into battle. This is definitely the Messiah. And so they were super excited. Now the kingdom was coming. And they said to him, with just giddy as you could all imagine, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Because they were excited. And Jesus said, while he was, uh, I didn't put that verse in. I'm sorry. Jesus said no. He said not at this time. He said it's not for you to know the times. He said I'm not going to establish it with an earthly kingdom yet. But instead I want you to focus on the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom is not coming by force, by natural kingdom yet. It's not going to be a natural kingdom that they're going to, he's going to set up. Let's, let's go on. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had, asked, they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? And here's, here's Jesus' response. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he said, I'm going to give you power, but I'm not going to give you power to spread an earthly kingdom. I'm going to give you power to spread the kingdom of God is what Jesus told them. He said, it's not physically, but it's spiritually. But God will establish an earthly physical kingdom one day, but he will do it, not us. He will do it. When we receive the Holy Spirit of God, 
we receive power. What kind of power? When you think of yourself as saved and have the Holy Spirit, do you think of yourself having power? What kind of power? Because I'm a big fan of, you know, action uh, superhero movies, Spider-Man, things like that. Like, I love to watch those movies. And then while you're watching, when you get done, especially when I was younger, I felt like, oh, I want to do that. I want to swing from buildings. I want to fly. I I want to have that power that these superheroes have. No one is more powerful than God himself. Can we agree on that? Superman doesn't stand a chance against God, which is why we're so glad he's a good guy, right? But when we give our life to Christ, and we are saved, we receive the Holy Spirit of God in us. We literally have the power of God in us. Now, to the young people here, that does not mean you should go try and uh, walk on water or fly uh, because you know that God can. Uh, But... You do have the power of God Himself in you, but the Holy. Uh, so the question is: Do you get the power, the ability to use God's power to do whatever He can do? Not a chance. Just because you have the power of God in you doesn't mean you wield the power of God any way you want. Just because. Jesus could turn stones to bread doesn't mean you just go outside and say, well, I have the power of God, so I command these stones to turn to bread, and, and then I command you to disappear. And Because com- what we, we do with power, unlimited power, there's a reason God is God and we are not, because we would use it for the wrong reasons. We would end up doing, you know, total power cor- t- corrupts totally or something like that, right? <clears throat> The Holy Spirit is not a genie that you get to command. The Holy Spirit is not the force that you learn to control and do whatever you want with. But, but, the Holy Spirit being God can do whatever God wants and can do through you. Peter couldn't walk on water But the Holy Spirit could walk on water through Peter, and he did. Peter. Now, we know Jesus walked on water. A lot of people say Jesus is the only person who walked on water. No, Peter walked on water right beside Jesus through the Holy Spirit's power. Philip. Think about Philip. Jesus, we were reading right here, Jesus appeared and disappeared all the time. He could just disappear and appear anywhere he wanted. Philip, after preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch and baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, the scripture says that the Holy Spirit snatched him away and he appeared in Azotus. He was on the road going down from Jerusalem to Gaza. I don't know how far down the road he made it. But Gaza and Azotus are 35 miles away from each other. A long trip. Philip, not having the ability to choose when he can appear and disappear anytime he wants like Jesus, had the Holy Spirit in him, and the Holy Spirit literally disappeared Philip and made him reappear in Azotus about 30 miles away. 
you don't get to wield the power of the Holy Spirit like a genie. But if you are faithful, and if you are committed to do what God has called you to do with that power, anything God can do, He can do through you to accomplish that purpose. Do you understand the difference? There's nothing that will be impossible. Nothing. Do I think that this was just something that happened during the time of the apostles and doesn't happen today? No, I don't. I don't. I've heard a lot of stories from Voice of the Martyrs of people over in, uh, over in uh, like countries like Africa and different places. And I hear a lot of miraculous stories that are happening today in the past 10, 20, 30 years that I cannot stand up here and verify any of them. But I believe them. I believe them. Because they are doing exactly what God called them to do. And in the process of doing what God called them to do, the reason they have that power, God can do anything He wants still today. I don't believe that miracles died with the apostles. I I don't believe that. I believe it's still happening today. All over the world. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that were separated and rested on each one of them. They were, they, and then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I'm going to take just... I'm going to try to go through this really quick, but I want to give y'all just a a, 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 a grammar lesson. Yeah, like I'm the one that should be given one of those. <laughs> uh, quick note on tongues, because I know a lot of different people will read this passage and think a lot of different things when it comes to tongues. Um, you've heard me talk about the word Lord, how the word Lord was common in 1611 when the King James Bible was printed first, Right? Lord was a common word. Everybody knew what it meant. Everybody understood it. And therefore, when they used it, they understood what it meant. Um, Tongues is another one of those words. In 1611, tongues was a very common word that people used. And it meant languages. I mean, it's simply just what it meant. Languages. Um, I tried to look up a dictionary for around 1611 when the King James was written. And I was actually surprised at how many different lexicons I was able to find. I was shocked. Um, this website right here, uh, leme.library.utoronto.ca. I was going to put it in the bulletin. I'm sorry. I did forget to do that. Although, if you're worried about the verses, we do have bulletins printed out. They will be verses you can grab on the way out. Um, But L-E-M-E stands for Lexicons of Early Modern English. This is a website you can go to for free. You can just Google L-E-M-E. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Um, In the same year, the exact same year, 1611, that the King James Bible was printed, I found two other foreign language grammars in 1611. This is the name of them. An Entrance to the Spanish Tongue by James Sanford and a Dictionary of the French and English Tongues by Randall Cotgrave. The exact same year, here are two foreign language grammars to teach you Spanish and to teach you French, and that's what the titles were. 
the Spanish tongue and the French and English tongues. Tongue was just the common word that they used for language. Now, the word language did exist, but tongues was commonly used for the word language. Um, So, when we say tongue today, we really only mean the organ in our mouth. That's really all we mean when we say tongue. Or, if we're religiously talking about tongues, we have a, con- a context that we put on what does that mean to speak in tongues. Um, but in the 16, 17, and even into the 1800s, the word tongue was commonly used to mean languages. Um, I found 53 different lexicons between 1550 and 1726 with tongue in the title meaning language. 53. It was just a commonly used word. So when we read that the apostles spoke in different tongues, it absolutely meant that they spoke in different languages. That's, that's what it meant. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible actually translated this, these verses to say languages. Remember, we used to, I used to preach from the Holman Christian. Here it is. Uh, verse 4, Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability to speech. Um, but, believe it or not, they received a ton of criticism for doing so. For translating this to say languages, which is what we use today, instead of saying tongues, they got a lot of kickback, a lot of angry letters, a lot of feedback saying that they should not have changed it to mean different languages because that just then makes it mean it's just normal languages. And so in the Christian standard, which I'm preaching from now, they revised it and went back to the use of tongues. I wouldn't have, but that's just my opinion. So just all that to say, I wanted to add one more thing. The translators of the King James Bible in 1611, I don't know if y'all have a copy of the 1611 King James Bible. I certainly don't. I looked them up on eBay. They're outrageously, outrageously expensive. And we're not talking about the real ones. We're talking about just somebody who photocopies one and just makes a printed modern day copy of it. They're still hundreds of dollars. Um, But we do, you can go online and look up the, the entire the entire Bible, including the introduction online for free, which is what I do. Uh, the translators of the King James Bible, those who actually translated the King James Bible in 1611, they said this in their notes to the readers in the introduction in the front of the Bible. This is what they said. Happy, and I left it in the, I left it in the Old English, so the spellings look crazy, but that's just, that's just how, it, that's how they spelled back then. Happy is the man that delighteth in the Scripture, and thrice happy that meditateth in it day and night. But how shall men meditate in that which they cannot understand? How shall they understand that which is kept close in an unknown tongue? Even if they had a copy of the Latin scriptures, how can they understand it if it's in an unknown tongue? Indeed, without translation into the vulgar tongue, the unlearned, are but like children at Jacob's well, which was deep, without a bucket or something to draw with. Now, a lot of you, vulgar. No, I also looked up the definition of vulgar back in the 1600s. And this is according to uh, Henry um, Cockerham's English Dictionary, 1623. Vulgar meant common, much used. That's what it meant just the common, much-used language. So looking again at what the translators of the King James said, they said, how can they, uh, they said, 
indeed without translation into the common language. The unlearned. Who are the unlearned? Those who don't know Latin. Those who haven't gone to study the, the, the Latin that was their common Bible was in. The unlearned are but like children at Jacob's well, which was very deep, without a bucket or something to draw with. The translators of the King James language of the Bible had the clear understanding that the Bible must be in the common used language so that anyone, anyone can pick it up and read and understand God's word so that they can be saved and grow close to God. Anyone. So what does all this have to do with the apostles in the book of Acts? Because what was the translators of the King James Bible knew then is still true today. God's word must be given to the people in their own commonly used language because it is the gospel, the good news about Jesus that has the power to save people. The message about Christ is what actually saves people. And that message doesn't have to be written, although we want it written so that if someone chooses to read it, they can have it. But it doesn't have to be written. It's a message. It can be spoken. And the primary means by which the Holy Spirit intended for the message to spread was spoken. That is the primary means by which the message is to be spread. Us, those who have the message, who are stewards of the message, to speak it to others. That is the primary purpose and method of God. Romans 10, 13 through 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Amen. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But this is what Paul goes on to say. How then can they call on him they haven't believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. You are saved by what? Well, you're saved by grace through what? Faith. We are saved through faith. And Paul said, faith comes from what's heard, and what's heard comes through the message about Jesus Christ. And people can't be saved unless someone gives them that message. God has a mission. He not only has a mission, he has a plan. Or you could say he has a method. God has a mission and a method. He has given us a mission and a method. He wants all people everywhere to love him. That's what he wants. He wants all people to love him. And he wants us to love each other. He's done all the work to make it possible. Therefore, since he's done all the work, all we're left with is the message. There's nothing for us to do to earn ours or anyone else's salvation. All we're left with is a message. The good news. The gospel. And we don't just have a man-made message. We don't have a natural message that you can give to others. We have a supernatural message with a supernatural power. You see, when you start talking to somebody about your favorite food, they may get hungry, 
But that's about it, right? If you start talking with someone about your favorite political party, it may get heated, but hopefully that's about it. If you start talking with them about God and their sinfulness and his call for them to place their faith in him and to repent, they may get humble or they may get really angry. Usually your two responses, if you give the message clear and don't water it down, they humble themselves knowing you're right. I do need to turn from sin. Or they get angry and say, who are you to tell me what to do? His call for them to love him, that he died for them so that they would not have to perish. Do you know why they get so angry or humbled? Because they're being drawn by the Holy Spirit. You don't have that conversation with someone and them not feel something. They don't just look at you and say, huh, that's interesting. Oh, well. They feel it. They feel that draw by the Holy Spirit. And it's in response to them feeling the Holy Spirit drawing them. It's their response to that that drives how they respond. Either they humble themselves to the Holy Spirit and submit to Him, or they resist the Holy Spirit. But if somebody's pulling on you and you don't want to be pulled, it makes you angry. So you get angry. Because He's pulling on them. And that's why when you share the message with somebody, it's not you just sharing a message. You have Power through the Holy Spirit to share a message that has the ability to save them, and that powerful Holy Spirit is actually grabbing a hold of them and pulling them. It's not you being creative or good with words or, 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 or convincing, it's the Holy Spirit's power working inside them. And so, that is the power that you have through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> It is a powerful message. It has the power to save them. <clears throat> Romans 1.16. <clears throat> I may not be able to talk much longer. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Do you believe that the gospel actually has power? Because a lot of people don't. They've never even considered it. They think it's just a message. It's words. How can it have power? How can it have power? The Holy Spirit is how it can have power. The message itself is the power of God himself to save someone. Because the Holy Spirit is working to save them. To everyone who believes. When the Holy Spirit fell on each of the apostles, he didn't give them power to go out and defeat the Romans that were occupying Jerusalem. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus said, you're going to receive power. They were hoping to set up an established kingdom on earth. He said, oh, by the way, you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you. The same one that was on me is going to come on you, and you're going to receive power. But he did not give them the power to go out and wage war against the Romans. What did he give them the power to do? He gave them the power to share the gospel. That is the purpose of them receiving 
that power. He could have just said, he could have just said, you will receive the Holy Spirit as a, as a seal of your salvation and you will receive assurance. He could have said that. If the Holy Spirit didn't want to give you power, he could have just gave you assurance. He could have just said, the Holy Spirit is going to change you, make you into a new creation, and he is your seal of your salvation, and therefore he is going to give you assurance. But sadly, that's how many of us in America live today. We believe the power of the Holy Spirit in us is to give us assurance of our own salvation. But that is not what he said. He said he is going to give you power. And what is that power for? It's not for your own selfish wants. It is the power to share and spread the gospel. And what do we see in the book of Acts? We see from beginning to end. At the beginning, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and were promised to have power to go and share the message. And then the whole book of Acts, we see them encountering obstacles. We see Paul gets bit by a snake, a viper, and he shakes it off in the fire. And guess what? He doesn't die. Why? Because he has a power of Holy Spirit in him. Why does, what, why does he have that power? To share the gospel on the island of Malta. We see every single apostle, every single person, Philip and Peter, we see them all throughout the book of Acts receive power of the Holy Spirit to live and the Holy Spirit is is living power through them and showing, doing miraculous things through them because every single one of them, their purpose in every single passage is to spread the kingdom of God, to spread the gospel message, to go out and to share that gospel with this person and the next person and the next person and the next person. That's why they were given power. And so it is no different today. We are given the same Holy Spirit and the same power. But many of us don't feel like we have any power. Many of us have never experienced that power. Why? Because we are not on mission. We're not trying to build the kingdom. We're not doing what God gave us the power of the Holy Spirit for. We refuse to. And therefore, we live with no power. No sign of power. No, none. And I can tell you right now, every time that I've tried to share the gospel with somebody, every time that I've tried to move the kingdom of God forward, I have felt a burning in my soul. And I have felt His power in me. I felt it. Because it's real. It's not phony. It's real. You know, you know that feeling you get? When, you, when you're around somebody and you know God wants you to share the gospel with them, but you don't want to because you're afraid. You know that feeling you get in there? That burning? That's the Holy Spirit. And He's crying out to you, don't be afraid because I have the power to do anything I want. And what I want right now more than anything else is to draw this person with my message of salvation. I'm already working in them. You can't tell it, but I'm already tugging at their heart. When they lay down at night, they don't feel good because I'm already drawing them. I've been drawing them for months. And right now, I want you to to use your body to speak to this person. Give them that message because I'm the one drawing them. I'm the one working on them. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about if you did a good job. You don't have to worry about if they reject you. You don't have to worry about it. I'm the one working. I'm the one doing it all. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But they don't have to. I'm going to continue to draw them until the day they die. Do you have that power? I'm going to have to skip 
Okay. Robert Gallaty, in his book, Bearing Fruit, uh, he told a story about a doctor in the early 1900s named Walter Lewis Wilson, who was asked by a visiting missionary this question. Who is the Holy Spirit to you? He responded in the way that I would imagine most of us would. He's a member of the Godhead. He's the third person of the Trinity. That's, that's the way Walter responded. And the missionary said, no, 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 you don't understand. Who is the Holy Spirit to you? Walter thought about it for a second, and this is what he said. He's nothing to me. I have no contact with him. And I could get along quite well without him. He was honest. He's nothing to me. I have no contact with the Holy Spirit. And I could honestly go on about my life the way I've been quite well without him. <clears throat> the next year, while he was listening to a message given by James M. Gray on Romans 12.1, which says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Gray, preaching on this verse, said this. Have you noticed that this verse does not tell us to whom we should give our bodies? It's not the Lord Jesus. He has his own body. It's not the Father. He remains on his throne in heaven. But another has come to earth without a body. God gives you the indescribable honor of presenting your bodies to the Holy Spirit to be his dwelling place on earth. God has come to earth without a body and he is asking you to give him yours to do what he wants to do. Robbie said that Wilson returned to his house and he laid prostrate on the carpet. There in the late hours of the night, he said, My Lord, I have treated you like a servant. When I wanted you, I called for you. Now I give you this body from my head to my feet. I give you my hands, my limbs, my eyes and lips, my brain. You may send this body to Africa or lay it on a bed with cancer. It is your body from this moment on. Do we live as though we have the Holy Spirit in us? Or can we just get along very well without Him? Who yearns desperately to save those around us? Imagine Him the Holy Spirit in you. Imagine this next time. You have offered to give him your body so that he can do his, move his kingdom forward on earth. You've offered to give him your body. And the next time you're around someone who's lost, he is desperately yearning to save them and drawing them. Will you let him use your body to share that message? Will you? It's as afraid of as you may be, as scared as you may be, as incompetent as you think you are. 
Will you just let him use your body as his own to speak to them the way that Jesus did when he was on earth? To speak to them in love, to show them love, to tell them how much he loves them. To beg them to repent of sin and to submit themselves to him as, his, as their Lord. Will you? Because if you are not willing to do so, then you're never going to know what it means to have the power of God in you. You won't. You'll never experience that power. You'll live this life as if it's really meaningless until you die. But if you do, you will feel that power. And who knows? Who knows what God may do through you? Who knows? He's already at work in them. And he wants to save them through the message about himself. And he wants to use us to do so. Are you saved? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? Are you willing to give him your body to do as he wants to do? And make the most of the time that we have left on this earth. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Our love fails miserably in comparison to your love. Father, we know how much you love us. We see you proved it by coming and dying on the cross for us. You showed us an example. You gave us an example to live by. You showed us how you want us to live with our bodies, just as you did with your body. You came to this earth. You put on a human body. You lived as a human And gave us an example of how you want us to use our bodies. To work towards the building of your kingdom. So that more and more and more people will spend eternity with you forever. Father, we just ask you to forgive us. Because we all could have done better. Up to now, we all could have done better. Father, forgive us where we haven't. But Father, going forward, just use us. Reassure us when we're afraid. Reassure us when we're afraid of what's going to happen and and, and whether or not we have the right words or or how it's going to come across. Just reassure us that that it's not about us. It's, It's all about you. That you're the one doing the work. That you're the one drawing people. You have a mission that all the world would be saved. That's your will. That's your desire. That's your heart. And you've given us a method that you want to use us as your mouthpieces. That we would show love to others and that we would speak the truth in love. To share that saving message, the message, the gospel message, the power of God to save. Father, use us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Work through us and just amaze us with what you have planned. We love you, Father. We thank you. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen.